following is a message at Living Savior Church in Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. To learn more, go to lsavior.org. Let's say for a second you are driving down your favorite road, Hendersonville Road. <laughs> fine, fine, another one, I-26. And it's one of those times when obviously you see the red lights and you see the verging and just then you see some of those people, some of our friends from maybe a couple states or maybe the state to the south and they're kind of doing this stuff and you think to yourself, I love it when we have these fall colors and they all come visit. This makes me feel all hospitable inside. All sarcasm aside, you see the traffic lights, you see everything converging, and it's just at that moment when impatience starts to get the better of people, and you see some people, whether or not they're two inches or two feet away from the bumper in front of them, that's not enough room for a car, although some will try to make it so. But then all of a sudden, in a moment of drastic impatience, just like that, it's at moments like that when patience glows. It's all the more noticeable. When nobody is demonstrating patience, suddenly somebody slows down to let an 18-wheeler get in when otherwise he wouldn't have a prayer before two lanes goes down to one. And you kind of pause for a second and think, oh, that, that wasn't so bad and maybe I needed that in my life. Or, or take another one of those circumstances that we've all seen. You're, you're in the waiting room. An entire room that is dedicated towards exercising patience because it's called the waiting room room. And and you're sitting there and you're waiting and you might want to know how long it's going to take before you can finally have the appointment that you've been waiting for for months because it took you a long time or them a long time before they would schedule it. And there you are and you're sitting there and they're calling one name after the next. And you're thinking, okay, I saw them. They were here before me. They were, did that person come after me? And now they're in front of me. I'm not the only one who's thought that. And then suddenly, this happened to me a couple months ago. A nice lady who took a whole lot of effort to get out of her chair, grabbed her walker, and walked right over to me and said, I really like your shoes. (laughs) And the only thing I'm thinking about is how I'm not going to get my next appointment. Those people that I'm visiting an hour after this, I'm going to have to somehow text them and I've been trying to visit them for a while and then there's that class and then there's this and all the while she comes over and she says something nice. Not just because maybe I can lie to myself and say that my time is more important than hers. My time isn't more important than hers. She exercises immense patience, especially in a moment when patience wasn't exactly top of mind for me. What causes you to struggle to exercise patience? Traffic jams? A waiting room, children, kids. How about this one? Parents, school, assignments, family members. When when you and I are struggling to exercise patience, it is exactly in those moments that the patience of others shines like lightning. And is that not exactly what Jesus unfolds for us in the story that he just told, the one that you just heard from the gospel of Matthew chapter 21? 
I invite you to have that one open, by the way, as we take another look at this story. This, this story that Jesus told is a parable. It's a fancy word for a story. It has earthly elements that help explain a deep spiritual meaning. So as we look at this easy-to-understand story from earthly terms, what deep spiritual meaning is Jesus unpacking? Well, first of all, this is the second of three stories that Jesus told on a Tuesday. And this Tuesday is not just any Tuesday. This is the last Tuesday that Jesus spent with his disciples that Holy Week, that last week before he died. So this is a few days before Jesus would be captured on that Thursday and then crucified on that Friday we call Good Friday and then rose again on that special Sunday called Easter Sunday. It's that Tuesday. And the tension between him and all of those teachers of the law, you could cut that tension with a knife. It is palpable. It is thicker than an August humid air in South Carolina. It is so thick. These people, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead recently. That was like the, one of the most recent miracles. And they hate his guts so much that the town of Bethany, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from Jerusalem where Jesus is telling these stories. They hate Jesus' guts so much that when Jesus raises Lazarus, you know what their reaction is? Let's kill Lazarus. I mean, how messed up and twisted do you have to be in your brain that there is a guy, let's just call him a dude, who's raising the dead back to life, and you are so blind with rage, and you are so lost in evil, that you want to kill the guy that he just raised back to life? Question mark, exclamation point. This doesn't make sense, does it? So Jesus is telling this story to these guys, and how does the story unfold? He tells a story about this vineyard, and this vineyard is beautiful. There's a wall. Clearly, this guy is wealthy. Vineyards back then, not all of them had walls. He digs the wine press even, and he entrusts it over to these renters who will take care of it. All of this is normal. This would resonate in the ears and minds of people in Jesus' day. All of that is normal. What's not normal is their response. You see, the expectation that the landowner would have is totally normal that when it comes time for harvest, they would share some of the fruit with the landowner. That's normal. That's like paying rent. And if any of you have ever paid rent before, which I'm sure is probably close to all of us, what happens when you don't pay rent? Oh, but they don't just decide to not pay rent. They decide to beat, to stone, and to kill the messengers, not even the landowner. And then it gets a little crazy, doesn't it? Not just their behavior, but then what the landowner does. Because what does he do next? Did you see it? I'm going to send more messengers. And you, pause for a second. As soon as Vicar was sharing that part of the story, what did you think to yourself? Or if you've ever read this story before or heard it, what did you think to yourself? That that's exactly what you would do? You're the landowner. You own the whole thing. You say who goes and who stays. You say how much or how little. You made the whole thing. Your own blood, sweat, tears, and money procured the thing. And then somebody does that to the messengers that you send, and what are you going to do? I'm going to send more messengers. Said nobody ever. You're thinking to yourself, okay, militia, how much is that going to cost? Police, eh, that's maybe a little too nice. How about if I can hire some people, big guys with big sticks? Because if you're going to do that to my people then guess what we're going to do to your people? 
Maybe you're thinking of the Godfather a little bit and you try to push away some of those thoughts, but you, you're thinking some thoughts that you really don't want to think. But top of mind are things like vengeance and payback and violence needs to be met with violence. Maybe, maybe not. But certainly you're not thinking, I'm going to send more messengers and I'll encourage them to have a smile on their face because maybe that will turn the tables. But that's exactly how the story goes. And that's not even the craziest part yet. Yes, they treat these next wave of messengers the exact same. And then what does the landowner do? You see, Jesus' story up to this point is totally normal. It includes elements that would be easy to identify for every single listener. It would make sense for those people in that time, and maybe it even makes sense for us in our time. But then this story takes a crazy turn. And by crazy turn, that does not even scratch the surface, because then what does the landowner say? I'm going to send my son. If you open up this account in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke, there's an added little descriptor. Each gospel, of course, is unique and highlights different perspectives, although equally true. Although, again, equally true. And in Mark and in Luke, it says, I will send my son whom I love. Would you have done that? I mean, I have three sons, so if I sent one, I would still have two left over. (laughs) But of course you laugh at that because that's ludicrous, right? Who would do such a thing? You, you, You would never send your own loved ones down the gauntlet to what you know to be a certain and inevitable peril. You would never do that. Not to mention a brutalized and awful, not to mention gruesome death. You would never do that. So then Jesus asks the question. He says to these guys, And these are the guys who, remember last week with Pastor Zell's sermon, these are the guys who didn't take to heart what John the Baptist was saying. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They pushed him off like he was some cycle preacher, not to mention he's wearing camel's hair and eating weird things. Jesus had been around them. There's nobody else that had been around raising the dead, feeding thousands, giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, causing lepers, several of them to suddenly be cleansed and their own teachers would validate it. It's not that the evidence was lacking. It was blaring right in front of their eyes. Exhibit A, exhibit B, all the way to Z and back to double A again. It's not like they didn't have any reason at all. And Jesus is telling them, hey, you should have just believed just because I said so. Why? Because I said so. And Jesus is talking to these people who, by their own word of the Old Testament, their own teachings, they are refusing to see that the culmination of the ages, the cornerstone of all time, the one who will either crush or cause people to stand for all eternity, that capstone is standing right in front of them. And he leads them into the drama of the story as it takes this ridiculous turn. So then he sends his son And now what do you think that landowner should do with those people who treat his son that way? And what do they say? Still blinded in their rage? Still hardened in their evil and unbelief? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And like the greatest fisherman of all time, Jesus sets the hook. Yep, that's you guys. That's you guys. You teachers of the law who have every reason to believe that the one who was promised, the only one who would free you from guilt and sin is standing right in front of you and you're going to say, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. Guess what? You are those wretches, he says to those people. And now I have a question for you. 
When you and I think to ourselves, if we are teachers of the law who would kill prophets, that, that's not us. And so we can easily relegate this story to be a past reference to people of a different historical context. And there is our exit strategy, right? But hold, hold the phone. Although we do not have the blood of any prophets on our hands, the applications of this parable reach far more broadly, and yes, even throughout history to include some people sitting in a chapel in 2023. So I'll just ask you, God, who is the ultimate landowner, has given you every single breath, that one you just took, and every single next one you're going to take, that that heartbeat that you enjoy even without thinking, the clothing, the food, the drink, a beautiful fall day, your home, your car, your health. You might think I could use some better health, but the fact that you have it at all is a blessing from God. And not only that, he has redeemed you. What what that word means, a big fancy word that means he's bought you back and the payment that he used was not gold. It wasn't silver. It wasn't costly stones. It wasn't gems or diamonds. He used the most valuable possession he had, which was the blood of his son to buy you back from a life that is worthless and pointless and aimless and left to be left to death and that's it? As though you're buried six feet under and then people forget about you in a couple of generations? No, 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 no. God does not want you to be left to that aimless existence. Instead, he's bought you back so you would belong to him and you would have an existence that lasts for eternity and to prove it, his son was raised from the dead. That is how God made him the cornerstone. It can't be removed. The cornerstone on which everything rests, namely eternity. And God has given that to you, free of charge. That's what the word grace means. His predisposed, undeserved favor of love and mercy towards you. Why? Just because. Just because he loves you. Even preschool children. I don't know if you know, by the way, how challenging it was for them to get up and to do all of those motions. I think I would need a lot of practice before I could do that. And here they are. And yet, you take children like that who are able to exercise such faith and conviction in a God who made them. And this is the same demographic who can say, why does God love you? He just does. He sent his son for me. And without a doubt in their face, and without any skepticism in their heart, they say the thing that is eternally true that you and I also believe. Look at what God has given us. Forgiveness, peace, and purpose in a life that is otherwise lost and aimless and worse yet, hopeless. God's given all that to you. God, the landowner who's planted you in his vineyard, and so he asks you. He asks you in all of your life, in the things that you say, in the thoughts that you think, and in your works of service to him and to other people. He says, where's your fruit? I mean, he planted you. He gave you life. He caused that soil of his word to create not only germination, but a saturation of his blessings throughout all of your existence. And then he says to you, your life. You you didn't have it without him. He's not just creating people so he can have the greatest people-watching exercise upstairs in his lazy boy of heaven. He made you, and he loves you, and he gives you purpose and meaning in your life. And then what is more, he sends messengers. Sometimes those messengers exist in in the form of a pastor who shares God's word with you even as he has to share God's word with himself. Sometimes it comes in the form of a a spouse who lovingly encourages you with God's word or, or a parent or a child who reminds you of the things that God says. Sometimes those messengers 
Sometimes those messengers come in the form of children who remind you the same reminders that you remind them about and how to serve God with faithfulness and humility, discernment and discretion, nobility and honor. And when those messengers come, what's our response? God's the, vine- God, God's the landowner of, of you and he's planted you in the vineyard of all of his creation and even more than that, the vineyard of eternal life, his kingdom. And so when he sends us messengers, it's really easy for us to, when we don't like the message, we can just malign the messenger. That's a great exit strategy. There goes my accountability. Or when God says messengers, we can pretend like the, the rules don't apply to us. We can act as though God's really talking to those other people and we can then, instead of allowing that message to resonate in our own hearts and minds, we can identify all the people who really need to hear that message. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, pastor. I know some people who need to hear what you're saying. Definitely. Let me tell you about my neighbor. Let me tell you about my spouse. Let me tell you about my brother or sister. All the while, God's word is aimed with arrows at each and every single one of us, starting first with the person we see in the mirror. So when God, who calls you to produce fruit and has planted you not only with physical life but with eternal life, says, where's your fruit? And sends messengers. Our response to his messengers, our reaction to his message, the fruits that we see in our life, what do we have to show? And if even that doesn't resonate with us, Imagine this illustration for a moment. There's a preacher who once said that let's just say for a second that God calls us to stand before him someday. And you can't allow, you can't allow the standards of anyone else to work for you. But let's just say for the last three years of your life, God put an imaginary recording device around your neck. And this recording device would only record your words. Nobody else's. So then God would call you to stand before him and he would say, I want you to give, account, give an account for your life. But I'm not going to use the standards of your wife or your husband. I'm not going to use your legalistic relative who always tells you you're a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm not going to use them. I'm not going to use that person who beats you down and burdens your conscience and hurts you and makes you feel only guilty. I'm not going to use that person. I just want you to grab that recording device and I want you to press that button that says play. And I'm only going to hold you accountable to your own words. Let's say that was the game. I don't know about you, but that haunts me. Because I know the things that I say, and I know the expectations that I have of others, and the expectations I have of myself, and I know that I, I'm like a candle trying to hold a flame in the middle of a hurricane. I got nothing. But you want to know not just the glimmer, but the gleaming light of God's grace that shines brightly for you and for me today? Put your hand over the left side of your chest. You feel your heartbeat? No, I'm serious. You feel your heartbeat? That's grace. That right now, even in this moment, God allows you to hear his message of grace to you, to be reminded again, not to be beaten up, but to know that he loves you. The fact that you and I are here alone, hearing ourselves what God's word says to us is grace. I mean, the fact that you have a spouse or a friend or a relative or a pastor or even a child or any combination of the above who 
tells you about God's love is divine. Is it not? Because God did not just send his son in this parable so that he would just die and that's it. He sends his son so that he would die for people like you and me for the times when we haven't listened as we should or caused his message to resonate in our lives or to react with fruits of faith and love and service. God causes his word to work so that you would know one thing more than any other, that when you stand before God, he does not, I want you to hear this, he does not hold your sins against you because he sent his son who lived perfectly in your place. And that punishment, he already took away so that when God looks at you, he no longer has this weight of expectation that will crush you like being underneath a millstone. Instead, he raised his son from the dead to prove that you are forgiven. Every last sin, even the feeling that you have about your guilt, does not last into eternity because God turned the tables with the body and blood of his son. And instead of putting you under the crushing weight of your sin, he already did that to Jesus and he then stands you upon that cornerstone so you would have eternal life now and forever. Don't take my word for it. Take your eyes and your mind and find that tomb that is still empty. There is no dead Jesus. There is no body. There's no remains. There's no bone structure. There's not a trace of evidence in all the world. I'm not just speaking biblically and spiritually. I'm speaking historically and empirically that there is no evidence that Jesus is dead. The evidence to the contrary is overwhelming that he most certainly was raised back to life which therefore validates that you and your life that rests upon him as the cornerstone is on the right side of history, on the right side of all eternity. There's a story of a cab driver who's sitting outside this old lady's home. He's in, he's in New York and he's honking and honking and it's minutes upon minutes and they're tracing away and they're blasting and he's got his meter about ready to go and he's just getting ready to leave and suddenly he sees the door crack and this frail old woman tries to get out of her apartment and she, and she gets down the stairs and he mumbles to himself, finally. And he helps load a couple suitcases, just two. And as he looks behind her and the door is open and she's about ready to close it, the whole thing is empty. And she gets in and she says, sorry, I'm very slow moving. Thank you for being patient. Again, the patience of others shines all the more brightly when we might struggle to exercise it. She gets in and he asks where she wants to go and he takes her through. The, through. Uh, but first she says, can you go through downtown? He's taking her to this hospice center and he said, it's, it's quicker not to go through downtown. And she said, it's okay, it's my last drive. The doctors have only given me a few days to live. Just then, he realizes what's going on and he shuts off the meter and he takes her on a drive, not just through downtown, takes her across the bridge and back, takes her along the shore. She recounts where her late husband ran a business that is now renovated and is something altogether different. She recalls this place where they used to go out to eat, one of their favorite Italian places. And then finally, when he gets to the place, this hospice center, she says, thank you. Thank you for being kind 
and patient. She didn't know what was going on in his mind earlier, and he's glad for that. Two of the workers come out and they help her into a wheelchair, grab her suitcases. She says one more thing and she calls the cab driver over and she gives him one more hug and she says, thank you for being patient. This will mean everything to me these last few weeks. God has given us time. God has given us opportunity. And each of those things are different for every single one of us. And we do not know when God's plan for us reaches its end. He holds every chapter, including that final period, in the palm of his sovereign and gracious hands. But he's given you not only new life in Jesus Christ, your crucified and risen Savior, who loves you and has freed you forever, he's given you opportunity to serve, to produce fruits, not just so so that it's something just between you and God in the privacy of your own head and heart, but a world full of people especially in our day, who don't see things that God has given you, things like patience and kindness and humility and love. That is all yours from the God who gave you the son whom he loves so that you would be his daughter and son whom he loves forever, but every day until eternity. God grant that to us all. Amen.